Hello there, Barry Smith here of Fingal Libraries, welcoming you back to another episode of Fingal Libraries' podcast of many things cultural and anything else that takes our fancy. Now, only one question from last week from Niall, and I do not believe it to be genuine. Niall asks, what did the Vikings do with their leaves? I can honestly say that I do not know, Niall, although I can tell you what they did with moss. Archaeologists found deep pits dug in North Dublin. The pits were used for human waste, where substantial amounts of moss were also found. The moss, it is believed, was used in lieu of toilet paper. Perhaps some leaves suffered a similar fate. Anyway, on to this week's topic. Christianity invites itself to Ireland. Imagine your fear and panic when members of your community manhandle you into the middle of a stone circle and tie you to a red-stained standing stone. You're utterly helpless. Everyone you know is there to watch. Your desperate pleas cannot be heard over the constant chanting. It's around 1,500 years ago, let's say a Friday night in June, a nice balmy evening. Everyone has come to watch you be sacrificed to Crom Croch. He is, of course, the chief god of pre-Christian Ireland, and in return for human sacrifices, generously supplies his loyal followers with bountiful harvests. This month, you're the unlucky sod. Now imagine the pang of hope and surprise when the chanting is broken by a loud voice demanding attention. A stranger enters the congregation and begins to chastise your chieftain, denouncing Crom Kuroch and proclaiming that the one true god does not want sacrifice, but wishes for all of his children to live in peace. People begin to look around at one another. Is it possible to honour your God without blood sacrifices? Now you're thinking, sweet, this mad preacher might just be able to pull this off. And if he does, you'll be his first disciple and help him in spreading this message of love and peace to the rest of the Gaelic tribes. Perhaps this new religion will finally unite all the peoples of Ireland. Unfortunately, your chieftain is having none of it. He nods at one of his warriors who promptly puts a knife in the preacher's belly. He makes some weird sign on his chest before he keels over and expires. Well, nuts to that anyway, you sigh, as some fella you used to play hurling with approaches you with a large knife. There'll be a good few more sacrifices to be sure before Christianity has any effect in these parts. Ireland, before Christianity invited itself over to our shores, was like most pre-Christian or pagan societies, perfectly content spending half the day appeasing some gods while spending the other half trying to avoid the attention of others. It was a much more stressful way of life when you think about it. Christianity only has us concerned with one god and the occasional saint should you lose something. But with paganism, it's a constant and ever-changing dance. Ireland's pagan past is difficult to decipher, mainly because the people who recorded it wished to make it pale in comparison to Christianity. The fact that they even recorded it was amazing and it was a hallmark of the Irish version of Christianity. That is our reluctance to let go of any part of our culture regardless if it offends the new religion. In a nutshell, here's what we think we know. A boyo named Crum Croch was the main god before the arrival of the newer gods called the Thuadadanan, which preceded the arrival of the one true god. Simples. It's possibly easier to look at people bringing new religious ideas in with them along with whatever other technological advances they had. So our earliest ancestors, the Mesolithic people, who were hunter-gatherers, arrived here via a land bridge between Ireland and Britain around 10,000 years ago. We unfortunately don't know very much about their religious practices. Sure, we don't really know very much about any of their practices, but we still live in hope that something will eventually turn up. Crom Croach could have been a god from this time. Maybe. The peoples that arrived here around 6,000 years ago were known as the Neolithic. These are the lads and lasses that brought farming to Ireland, as well as throwing up all the stone monuments around the country. 
the pinnacle of which is the great passage tomb complex of Brunabonia in County Meath, where Newgrange, Nowth and Douth stand as reminders of the immense engineering skill of our ancestors. The Neolithic brought with them their new gods, or absorbed the pre-existing religious ideas and expanded upon them. Theirs were the Thuadadanan, a race of godlike people who inhabited the great stone passage tombs and who marked the seasons and watched over or hindered their livestock. Meanwhile, as the Roman army steamrolled across Europe, Christianity perched itself on its shoulder, and when a new people had been sufficiently pummeled into submission by hardened legionaries, churches inevitably sprang up. Christianity had found a firm friend with Rome, once the latter stopped persecuting them, of course. They can thank a big XP-shaped cloud in the sky for that one. You know about the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 312, yeah? Constantine was about to battle with Maxentius for control of the Roman Empire, and he said to God that if he exists, to give him a sign. The next thing he sees a huge Chiro in the sky, Chiro being the XP symbol, which is the first two letters for Christ in Greek. Of course, other contemporary accounts report an array of possible cloud sightings that day, including sheep, a witch with a big nose, and a Koopa Troopa. Constantine then goes on to win the battle, and true to his word, he makes Christianity the state religion. Christianity, for its part, with the heavenly message of love and turning the other cheek, and now with Rome at its back, embarks on a vicious campaign against all the other religions that had previously held the upper hand. So as the Roman army marched across Europe, Christianity clung on to the legionaries' coattails. It was a tried and tested method. Rome encountered a new people. It baked them into submission, and when they eventually regained consciousness, there's a brand spanking new church in the middle of your village. Congratulations, you've just been Christianized. Please cease all prayers and offerings to other gods, especially gods of war and trickster gods. They're just straight up annoying. Whereas you used to praise your god with sport, fighting, sacrifices and drinking, now you simply attend mass at nine in the morning. Failure to uphold these rules will result in crucifixion, and not like the kind your mother used to threaten you with, but actual crucifixion, with the nails and the wood and the hanging. Britain was really put out with the initial Roman invasion, to say the least but a few score mass slaughterings of her people later and they gave in. Rome wasn't so bad really. They did bring over the jacks and underfloor heating. While Rome was busy scrubbing its latrines and hoping that the Picts and Scots respect the concept of Hadrian's Wall, Christianity was eyeing up Ireland. What say you send a legion over yonder, knock the people around a bit and then we'll take it from there? The Romans were having none of it. Britain was a kip and there were reports that Ireland was even wetter. Wetter than Britain. You're having a laugh. There were, of course, other things going on, like mass instability, rivalry, corruption, and the decay of the founding principles of the empire. But it was the weather, really, that halted the juggernaut that was the Roman army coming to Ireland. So Christianity was on its own. It was one of the first times that it had to convert a people that hadn't had the bejesus beaten out of them by the Roman army first. And I don't think that's an unimportant consideration, as it shaped how Christianity had to develop here, which was very different to everywhere else. The 4th and 5th century would have seen some trade between Ireland and Roman Britain, and as a result some exposure to Christianity. Presumably enough, considering that by 431, Pope Celestine sent over a bishop named Palladius to minister to the Scots believing in Christ. We were of course the Scots, Scots being Scoti, which the Romans used to call us. A few of us Scoti knocked over to Northern Britain and started to fight with, slash took a bit of a fancy to some of the Picts over there, and hey presto, you've got Scotland, but we're not looking for it back, they can hang on to it. Palladius was a Frenchman, or a man of the area that would become France. He was from Gaul, and was from an extremely high-ranking noble family. So he landed at Arklow in 431, and didn't have the best time, truth be told. 
It was written of him that God hindered him, and neither did those fierce and cruel men receive his doctrine readily, nor did he himself wish to spend time in a strange land, but return to him who sent him. Keeping in mind that this was written by a fellow called Miracu, who was St. Patrick's fanboy, and was probably downplaying his hero's predecessor's achievements so as to make Patrick look all the better. Palladius is still associated with several places including Clonard in County Meath. Anyway, the King of Leinster told him to get lost and Palladius thought best to do just that. He might have popped over to Scotland for a spell and died there, or maybe here, we're not quite sure. Soon after Palladius left, the shamrock-wielding top-top-trumper of Irish heroes arrived on these shores. Patrick had such fond memories of Ireland as a young lad that he returned here later as a man, a man on a mission from God. He flew around the country apparently baptising thousands whilst ordaining priests left, right and centre. He didn't care who he ticked off, and when a king would look away for a few minutes, Patrick would convert his son without a second thought. Patrick leaned into the Irish understanding of things and used the shamrock to explain the Holy Trinity, as the Irish had a reverence for their pagan triple deities. Patrick even confronts and converts some of the heroes from Irish mythology, including some of the Fianna, in an effort to further persuade people of the truth of God. Anyway, there is loads more that could be said of St. Patrick, so I direct listeners to the works of his hagiographers, Tirakon and Muraku. Their works are originally written in Latin, but there are translated versions if you're feeling lazy. Alternatively, you could just watch the cinematic masterpiece, St. Patrick the Irish Legend, made by Fox Family Channel in 2000, where Patrick Bergen plays the eponymous hero, and with ironic Thor-like qualities, smashes pagan altars with his giant lightning hammer. It's actually up on YouTube if you have an hour and a half to spare. Despite making some good gains, it was never going to be a quick job converting an island full of people. All the usual bluster and dictation that worked so well elsewhere didn't have the same effect here. So there was still talk of pagan elements of society in the 9th century. That's 500 years after the first missionaries arrived here, so you can see how slow it was to catch on in some parts. With no legionaries to ensure that the local populace were open to new ideas, Christianity had to employ some new tactics in Ireland. So how best to win over people? Simply hang around long enough until they forget what life was like before you were here. Bulletproof. It must have been admittedly at times a sad-looking but successful long-game tactic. After no one gave a missionary any attention, he would simply hang around the village. Head down the stream if that's where the youths were hanging out, stand beside a group of lads having a pint at the local drinking hole, make idle chatter with some women as they went about their daily work. He'd be like that irksome shop attendant who won't let you browse in peace. Only rather than telling you that those genes would be very flattering to your particular figure, he'd be incessantly lecturing you on all the great things about Christianity and how much better Jesus is than Lou the sun god. Someone would inevitably take the bait and say that Lou would be able to beat this Jesus fella hands down. No sooner would the words have left his mouth there would be a collective groan from everyone else as they prepare themselves for the imminent barrage of biblical teachings and counter-arguments that will spew from the missionary's mouth for anywhere up to four hours depending on whether he has eaten in the last while. The missionary would also tag along to any social gatherings and celebrations. Here he would constantly be interrupting the druid or chieftain from the back of the class. He would be an opportunistic sniper. When the druid might berate the congregation for not sufficiently honouring the gods, the missionary would pipe up. Well, God Almighty wouldn't require this of you. All he asks is that you honour your mother and your father and so on and so forth. Then he might start to gather his few followers in the same place and say an old mass, but on a different day. His aim and that of many missionaries was to associate themselves and their religion with places that were already sacred. Eventually, they simply started to appropriate the sacred places. One particular village's sacred tree would become equally sacred to the growing Christian population. A pagan sacred well or hill or stream would become Christian holy places. 
As I said, they were playing the long game. As the generations passed, people just accepted that many sites were sacred to both the Christians and the pagans. People would have dipped in and out of either, if and when it suited them. So, as you stand by your what is today an overtly Christian holy well, hill, site, or indeed a church, as they did build their early churches over pagan sacred sites, know that you are standing in a place that has bore witness to continuous reverence for thousands upon thousands of years, which is kind of cool, wouldn't you say? This was how Christianity had to develop here. Elsewhere, it could wipe the slate clean and firmly establish a church power centre. But in Ireland, it had to graft itself onto the existing religious structure. This unwillingness to change perhaps says more of the Irish character than the Irish affinity to any particular religion. Sure, it's in us all, isn't it? You're about to do something when someone tells you to do that very thing. And what do you do? Dig your heels in with burning indignity. Well, that's the last bloody thing I'll be doing today. The malleability of the Christian church was not one of its defining features. But that's what had to be done here. The people were unwilling to accept it as a completely foreign entity, but if it dressed itself in an Irish cloak, people would be more willing to accept it. All that being said, Christianity obviously took hold here and flourished to such an extent that it became a powerhouse in early medieval Ireland. With the elites of Irish society converted to Christianity, they lavished patronage, wealth and land on their local monastic centres. As a result, the church became the biggest landowner in the country. They became centres of learning and craft. The adage of Ireland as the land of saints and scholars is not an exaggeration. The young native scholars that filled the monastic schools had to learn alien languages like Latin and Greek, which made them appreciate languages on another level. So much so that linguistic and grammatical texts were widely written and studied here. Irish monks and scholars were also masters of the study of science and maths, including the calculations for the dates of Easter, which was an extremely difficult and intrinsic calculation and was known as computus. You might think that's an overstatement, but it's true. Everyone went mad over the Easter dates. There were even international conferences that focused on the correct calculation of the Easter dates. It was a troublesome concoction of astronomy, maths and theology that had Christendom tying itself in knots every few centuries. Someone would construct a template for determining the date. And sure enough, this would be disputed in the line, with some favouring a new calculation and others remaining with the old. There are accounts of Irish delegations heading over to Rome to sort this kind of stuff out. Irish missionaries could be found all around Europe during the supposed Dark Ages, which were anything but on this island, as can be seen with the incredibly skillful illuminated manuscripts that were being produced here. Even the networking structure of the church developed differently here. Elsewhere, Christianity was based on the power of the Pope, and that power cascaded down the chain of archbishops, the archless bishops, and so on and so forth, all the way down to the fellow that had the key for the tabernacle. Ireland did have her bishops, but nobody really paid them much heed. Ireland developed a monastic structure, which was under an abbot. This resulted in hundreds of small ecclesiastical centres springing up all around the place. It really mirrored the spread-out nature of Irish settlements. To give it even more of an Irish flavour, most of the abbots were of noble families, thereby allowing the prominent families of an area to hold power both in physical as well as spiritual terms. Owing to the abbots being nothing more than the sons of warrior kings, they themselves turned out to be just like their dads and we have loads of accounts of monasteries supplying fighting men for musterings, which was where a king would call for all able-bodied men to gather so they could go off and raid a neighbouring kingdom. There are even accounts of monasteries going to war with each other. So you can see how Christianity just slotted itself into the Irish way of life. It just doesn't suit us to do something the way everyone else did it. Irish monks even cut their hair differently, I'm not joking. English priests had their friar tuck-style hairdo, shaved at the top with a big silly-looking fringe. The Irish shaved the front of their head and allowed the back to grow long. It was much sharper looking. 
There were so many disagreements and arguments between the Irish and English and continental churches that it was decided to settle the hairdo debate, as well as the calculation of the Easter dates, but mainly the hairdo, at the Synod of Whitby in England in 664. The English were deemed to have won the argument, but the Irish clearly felt cheated, as they largely ignored the verdict, and with a flick of their long, luscious locks, they turned on their heel and left. Unfortunately for the Irish and their hairdos, this synod would have very far-reaching and unforeseen consequences, as it formed the basis for the English argument to invade Ireland hundreds of years later, in order to force the Irish church in line with that of Rome. The English are much like elephants, they never forget, and in the 13th century they were at it again. During a parliamentary meeting in Dublin, the Irish hairdo, known as the Coulon, was brought up in the same sentence as the word degenerate, by the exceedingly boring short-hair-wearing Anglo-Normans. The Coulon was described the same as the Irish monks used to wear it, shaved at the front and long at the back. Presumably deemed entirely too stylish, the stuffy Anglo-Normans outlawed the Irish hairdo, which is why I imagine relations between the two were so bad for so many centuries to come. Augustine, it should be noted again that all views and opinions expressed in this series are solely that of me and not of Fingal Libraries. So thanks a million for listening. I'm Barry Smith of Fingal Libraries and I hope you'll bring yourself to tune in next week for another thrilling episode. Slongafoil. So